Every human life matters. Whether born or unborn, young or old, healthy or sick, every person is made in the image of God. And so this morning, we're joining with churches all over the country on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday to reflect God's gift of life. Did you know that on January 22nd, 1984, President Ronald Reagan issued a presidential proclamation designating the third Sunday of January as National Sanctity of Human Life Day? Reagan said, I call upon the citizens of this blessed land to gather on that day in homes and in places of worship to give thanks for the gift of life and to reaffirm our commitment to the dignity of every human being and the sanctity of each human life. As Christians, we believe that human life is sacred from the womb to the tomb We are all made in the image of God. We didn't come to exist just by accident. But all of us, those born and the unborn, have been carefully created by the eternal God. That phrase, sanctity of life, it reflects the belief that because we are made in the image of God, human life is sacred. It has value. It has dignity and should be, be, be protected and respected all times, at all times. This month is the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which resulted in the death of 65 million image bearers of God. 65 million babies slaughtered. Roe has been overturned. Praise the Lord for that. And yet, abortion is still completely legal in all 50 states. Yet some states have stopped surgical abortions and some clinics have closed, but many more have opened and the abortion industry has now made it possible for a woman to order pills over the internet. And I think they're pushing it through that you would actually be able to walk into a CVS or Walgreens to be able to purchase these pills and murder a child. Abortion is murder. And it should be the prayer of every Christian to see abortion abolished. Now, this morning, I am not speaking to you as a politician. I'm not speaking to you as a science scientist. And in fact, I'm actually dumb when it comes to those two things. But I am speaking as a pastor. In fact, the only reason why we're taking a break from our series in the Gospel of John is because pastorally, I'm concerned with what Christians believe regarding the sanctity of life and abortion. And so as we join with other churches around the country, we mourn the culture of death 
that we live in. We pray for revival, for people to turn from their wicked ways. But I also pray that we would be a people of the word and not the world. To see from scripture that from the moment of conception, a human life exists. And that abortion is a murder of that human life. Today we'll be looking at Psalm 139, which is a psalm that definitely speaks to the value of life. And it gives us insight into when God says life begins. And yet this morning, I don't want you to just have ammunition towards our culture and and know where the pro-life verses are in our Bibles, which is a worthy application. But more importantly, I want you to see who God is. I want you to see who you are and to be in awe like David was as he wrote this psalm of the all-knowing, ever-present, creative God that we see in the scriptures. And that you all would be motivated to hate evil. Evil in the world around you and evil in your own heart. That you would ask God to search you, to point out any sin in your life. The psalm has a lot to say about the greatness of God. But it also has some things to tell us about the sanctity of human life from the moment of conception to death. And so it's structured into, into four sections, and each section has six verses. So that's helped me easily structure this sermon. So looking at verses one to six, we will see that God knows me. In verses seven to 12, we'll see that God is with me. In verses 13 to 16, God made me. And then verses 17 to 24, my response to God. God knows me, God is with me, God made me in my response to God. And the main point, what I hope you see in the text this morning is this. Because we are known and created by God, our sanctification and the sanctity of life matters. Because we are known and created by God, our sanctification and the sanctity of life matters. All right, so you will notice in this psalm, uh, we have that superscript, to the choir master, a psalm of David. All right, so some translations say director of music. I like what the King James says, to the chief musician. So in our church, that would be Michael. All right, so uh, make sure you thank him for being a good chief as you leave this morning. But notice this is a psalm of David written to the choir director, to the chief musician. David wrote this psalm to be sung by the people of God. All right, so let's look at the first six verses that speak to God knowing us. David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. 
You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. David begins by saying that God has personal knowledge of him. Personal knowledge of him. It's not that just that God knows everything. He knows me. It's not just that God is everywhere, but he is present with me. It's not that God has created everything, but he has created me. This psalm is intensely personal. And David begins by saying, God, you know me. Verse two, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, sitting down and rising up. He's saying this to make the point that God knows everything about us. Even the most everyday things. What's more everyday than us sitting up and then getting back down. Jesus says something similar in Luke 12. He says, God has numbered all the hairs on your head. God knows everything about us, even the things that we think are not that important to know about somebody. Who cares how, how many hairs are on your head? I know there's some guys in here who wish there were some hairs on their head. Sorry, that was a low blow. I can't sit down, right? And I can't stand up without God noticing. God not only knows the most mundane, everyday things about us, but he knows our thoughts. Do you see what David says in verse four? He says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. <laughs> in our unguarded moments, probably just like what I had right there, making fun of you all, uh, we say something foolish, right? Or something we didn't think we would say. And yet in those moments, God's not surprised. He knows exactly what we were about to say before a word is even on our tongues. God isn't surprised. Nothing's hidden from him. In verse 3, David says, God is acquainted with all of our ways. All of your ways. Shouldn't that affect the way that we live? The thoughts we think, the words that we say, the things that we do. Look at verse 5. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. You cannot escape God's knowledge of you. He's got you hemmed in. And so all these words, David helps us see that he was constantly under the observation of God. You are always being watched. Many of us would feel very uncomfortable if we notice someone following us around all the time, watching us, looking into our windows and our homes, watching us as we slept, as we got up in the morning. It's because we don't trust whoever's doing that type of watching, right? It's creepy. It's creepy. 
But in our house now, Zoe's moved on to the big girl bed. She loves her big girl bed. And so instead of rocking her in a chair to sleep at night, she wants Diane or I to sit on the floor and just be there as she goes to sleep. And at any moment in which we decide to leave the room before she has fallen asleep, she asks for us to come back and sit down. She wants us to watch her. She wants us to watch her as she goes to sleep. It's comforting to her. And the same goes for us who are children of God. His constant knowledge of us and his watching us is a comfort to us. The fact that God knows everything about us, even down to the last detail, should comfort us or convict us. Before we tell a lie or commit a sinful act, our awareness that God knows all should convict us at least. Because if you think about it, when we think no one is around to see us do something or will know what we did, it's easier to do the wrong thing. But don't be deceived. Don't be deceived into thinking that you can sin and get away with it. God's knowledge of you is greater than you know. He knows it all. That thing that you're hiding, he knows it. This should convict us. And yet at the same time, it should bring much comfort. Nothing happens to us. Nothing escapes God's attention. Nothing happens to us without him knowing. He's fully aware of every trouble and every trial that you're facing. Verse 6 says, Such knowledge is too wonderful to me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David is saying that God knows him, be knows him better than he knows himself. The fact that God is all-knowing, that he knows our thoughts, our speech, our ways before we think, speak, or act is too wonderful. David is saying that this type of knowledge is just beyond us. It's overwhelming. He can't imagine the knowledge that God has for him. It's too wonderful. This all-knowing, ever-watching, wonderful God not only knows me, though, but he's present with me. Look at verses 7 to 11. David speaks of God being with him at all times. Look at verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. David confesses here in this psalm that God is with him. God is with you. He's always present. It doesn't matter where you go. There's no escaping his presence. Remember when we studied Jonah. What did Jonah try to do? 
He tried to flee the calling that the Lord had placed on his life. He tried to flee from the presence of God, but he couldn't. David writes, where shall I go from your spirit? Where where shall I flee from your presence? And the answer to those questions is nowhere. Nowhere. I don't think these verses are saying that David was trying to flee from God. That's not the point here. But he's making an emphasis here that God is ever present. There's no place in the universe that God has created in which he's not there. David explains, if you go north, if you, if you ascend to heaven, he's there. If you go south, down to Sheol, the place of the dead, God is there. If you take the wings of the morning, you go east, or you head to the sea, you go west, God is there. North, south, east, and west, God is there. There's no place where you can flee from his presence. And not only is God there, but his hand leads him and holds him. God doesn't only know about the trials and difficulties that we face in our lives, but he's there with us. He's present within the trials and he's leading and protecting us. And then David says, the darkness is not dark for God. Think about that. The darkness is not dark for him. He's the God who sees everything and knows everything. And so there's no hiding from him. There's no hiding from him. You can turn off the lights. You can crawl under your bed. You can try to be quiet. You might be able to hide from man, but you can't hide from God. This was true for David, and praise the Lord, these truths are true for us Today, he knows all about us. That's what we see in the first six verses. He's with us everywhere, verses 7 to 12. And now starting in verse 13, he's going to talk about how God made us. Look at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. When David says, for you formed my inward parts, He's saying that the God who knows all, the God who is always present, had the care and concern for David even in his mother's womb. David understood that God knew him before he was born, before his birth. He knew him as a child conceived and developing in the womb. In these verses, a biblical perspective of the tragedy of abortion is made super clear. Life is sacred from the moment of conception. God is pro-life. Here David is saying, Lord, you formed me. You created me. You created not only this beautiful world that we live in, but you created me. He created each and every one of you. 
God forms our inward parts. He forms all that we are. He knits us together in our mother's womb. God is the one who forms and creates life. God is the author of life. And so the fact that God knows the child and cares for the child in the womb means that God's concern for life begins at conception. And it means that God's people have a responsibility also to to know of and to care for children who are in the womb. In the United States today, even with Roe versus Wade overturned, abortion is still legal in all 50 states. A woman can abort a child at any time, for any reason, under any circumstance. What a terrible violation of this biblical truth. Some people argue for the moral right for abortion because the mother has the right to do with whatever, she has the right to do whatever she wants with her own body. And that's true. A mother has the right to do whatever she wants with her own body. But Psalm 139 demonstrates that God sees another body, another human life in that womb. Another human life who is created by God, who knows, he knows them, he cares for them. John Calvin wrote this, the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of his mother, is already a human being, and it is a monstrous crime to rob it of life, which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. People usually argue that the fetus is not yet a human life, but only part of a woman's body, like an appendix. But that's not the way that the Bible speaks of an unborn child. Look at verse 14. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David is not saying how wonderful he is, but he's saying how wonderful God is as creator. And today we know far more than David could ever know about the human body because of the advances in technology and science. And so so that should make us even more in awe of God who fearfully and wonderfully made us. In verse 15, David says he was intricately woven in the depths of the earth. The depths of the earth here is just a poetic way of saying that secret place of the womb. And yet today, our modern technology has allowed us to see the development of a baby inside the womb. We've uncovered that there's brain activity in the unborn child even before the mother knows that she's pregnant. But we don't know all. We don't know all that's going on within a mother's womb. Even with those 4D sonograms that make babies look like aliens, Our knowledge is small and insignificant in comparison to what God sees and knows. David writes, his frame was not hidden, his bones. He was intricately woven. The verb here for woven describes an embroidery, weaving various threads together 
skillfully to make a beautiful tapestry. Matthew uh, Poole, a commentator, says that our bodies in the womb are exquisitely composed of bones and muscles and sinews and veins and arteries and other parts, all framed with such wonderful skill that even unbelievers, upon the contemplation of all the parts of man's body and how excellently they were framed for both beauty and use, had broken forth into pangs of admiration and adoration of the creator of man. God is described as the one who knits us together in our mother's womb, who weaves us together. A really close friend of my mom and dad owns an oriental rug business. And the rugs that they sell sell and make sell for thousands of dollars. I was just on their website. It was pretty, like, whoa. (laughs) To me, that's crazy. To to spend that amount of money on something that you're going to step on and spill coffee on right? But the reason why those rugs are so expensive, the reason why they have so much worth is is because it takes a master craftsman seven to nine months to weave that rug together. Now think that that's what God is doing with each and every unborn child in the womb. Intricately woven and formed with care. In verse 16, he says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. What David and others could not see, God could see. Again, this is another example of God's perfect love and care for the unborn. And God has a plan for each life he creates. He writes, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And then verse 17 leads to another section. It leads to our response to who God is and what he has done. Look at verses 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. David was filled with amazement of thinking of how much God knew and cared for him. The fact that God would think well of me. The thought that God would think often of me. David writes, how precious, how precious it is that God thinks of you. In Jesus Christ, God thinks well of you. He thinks of you often. How often does God think of us? David says here that his thoughts of us are vast. Think about being on a beach, which is a very welcoming thought on a day like today. Think about being on that beach and considering all the grains of sand on that beach. David says that God thinks about you more than there are grains of sand in the whole entire world. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon on this verse, said, You know that people are very proud if a king has merely looked upon them. I heard of a man who used to boast all his life that King George IV once spoke to him, and he only said, get out of the road. But it was a king who said it, so the man felt greatly gratified. But you and I, beloved, can rejoice that God, before whom kings are all grasshoppers, actually thinks of us and thinks of us often. 
And David sort of transitions into this prayer that we see in verses 19 to 22. He writes, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. With these verses, it feels like this psalm is heading in a very unexpected direction. Right? David shifts pretty quickly from that moment of awe and worship of God to this prayer against the wicked. He prays against the wicked, the men of blood. And notice that these people are not necessarily out to get David, but they're against God. He says that they speak against you with malicious intent. They're described as your enemies who take your name in vain. What we're seeing here is that Davis is, David is zealous for God's honor. He's, he's on God's side. And as he thinks about the Lord and how amazing and, and wondrous his works are, he also thinks about the world around him. And he has this righteous anger toward those who oppose God and oppose his word. And then the language gets stronger. He says, do we not hate those who hate you, O Lord? I hate them with complete hatred. As many of us read these words, we're kind of shocked by the intensity of David. But David went against this idea that's very strong in our day, that we can love God without hating evil. That's the temptation of our day, to think that we can love God without hating evil. There's a proper place and a proper hatred of what God hates. And as we think about sanctity of human life Sunday, we should hate the evils of abortion. We should hate that there's an industry in our day that makes money by killing babies. Image bearers of God robs them of their dignity, robs them of the life that God had planned for them. We are surrounded by a culture of death. Men and women of blood. A culture that no longer values the sanctity of human life. And yet, when Jesus came, he gave us, his followers, a new command in regards to our enemies. He tells us to love and to pray for our enemies. Why? Why does he do this? Because God desires for all people to repent of their sins and be saved. And so as followers of Jesus, we need to constantly seek that balance that Jesus spoke of in the Gospel of John to be in the world, but not of the world. To be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be a part of the world so that we can reach people for Christ and to uphold, unrighteousness, uphold righteousness 
But we must not let the evils of our world pull us away from obeying all that God has commanded. And that's the word for our generation. I feel like we do get the message. We need to be in the world to reach people for Christ, but we don't do a good job of not letting the evil of the world pull us away from obeying God. We need to find that balance. And the psalm ends with verses 23 and 24. There's this humble prayer of David. As David spoke so strongly of those who oppose God, now David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. That's humility. Because if this psalm ended in in verse 22, you'd think David has this like self-righteous man, right? Lord, I'm on your side and take out the bad guys. But David knew the truth of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 9, that the heart is deceitful. David wanted to avoid the evil men of his day, not because he was too good for them, but because he couldn't trust himself in evil company. He was prone to the very same sins. And so are each and every one of us. So David ends this psalm by saying, I know that there are evil men of blood in this world who oppose you, And I don't want to be one. So please, Lord, search me. David comes to God, the God who knows everything, who is ever present, who created him, and he trusts God to search him and to know his heart. David is leaning on the grace of God. He understood that he could not know his heart. You don't know your heart. So we all need to ask God to search us and reveal. He says, try me and know my thoughts. And in the the New American Standard Bible, it's know my anxious thoughts. Some of our anxieties may reveal an aspect of unbelief or misplaced trust. So David prays, try me, know my anxious thoughts, reveal those things to me. In verse 24, David prays, see if there's any grievous way in me. David is asking God to reveal any unknown sins in his life. This shows how much he cared for the holiness in his life, how he cared about his sanctification. He recognized that there could be sins that he didn't see. So this morning, are you in that place? Do you understand that the same could be said for each and every one of you? That there could be things in your heart that grieve the heart of God and that you could be unaware of them. We all need to pray this prayer, but it's a dangerous prayer to pray. Because it's asking God to expose what needs to be exposed. 
our sanctification matters. As much as we may feel that we are right, we may be wrong. We all need to ask God to search our hearts and to show us our sins. And then when God does, we not only have to confront our sins, but we have to repent of them. And then do you see what David ends the psalm with? Look at verse 24. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is what David's desired destination was. Trusting in the all-knowing, ever-present, creative God to bring him to everlasting life. To be led in the way that pleases God and lasts forever. And so this morning, I ask you to consider the God who knows you. Nothing is hidden from him. I ask you to consider the God who is always present. You can never escape him. And the God who made you, who sees and forms every life in the womb. He is the wonderful creator, the sovereign God who plans out our lives from the beginning. And 2,000 years ago, a mother named Mary conceived a baby in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that baby came into the world to live and die according to the plan of God. Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinners. He lived the perfect life that you can never live. He died the death that you deserve to die, and he rose from the dead, securing eternal life for all who believe. We all have sinned, and God has seen it. Even when you've tried your hardest to hide it, there's nowhere you can go to escape him. He knows you because he created you. And yet, even with the knowledge that you were going to sin, he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to the cross to die for your sins in order that you would repent and turn and trust in Jesus. Jesus, Jesus Christ, is so pro-life that he was willing to give his life so that you would have life in him. His death, the death of Jesus, proves that every life is valuable from the womb to the tomb. And so this morning, I don't know where you're at, but I hope that you see what God's word says about who he is, about who you are, and in light of Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, what God says about when human life begins and how that affects our views on things like abortion. And I want you to know that my heart breaks for the mothers who have done this and for the fathers who either supported it or encouraged it. 
So as we close today, I imagine there are a number of people in this room that might be affected by abortion in one way or another. And we have a common link. All of us had made decisions that we regret. So we're in all this together. Amen? But there's no other way around it. Abortion is sin. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, please know that God forgives your past. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you healing as you confess your sins to him. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, please know that God offers you forgiveness of sins. If you turn and place your faith and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. The purpose of this morning's message is not to condemn the mistakes of the past. It is to reveal sin, because in order to receive Christ, you need to see that you are a sinner, but to also see that there's grace, to see that there is forgiveness in Christ. It's not to condemn the mistakes of the past, but to affirm the sanctity of life, the value of life, to see what God's word says about human life and when it begins. Because we are known and created by God, our sanctification and the sanctity of